From in and around the Capital Region, on the Alive Radio Network, this is The Matter at Hand. I'm Alicia Purdy. I believe that the whole United States is mourning with me. And if the death of my son can mean something to the other unfortunate people all over the world, then for him to have died a hero would mean more to me than for him just to have died. The broken body of Emmett Till was seen all over the world after he was lynched to death in Mississippi in 1955. Swollen beyond recognition, his skin violently torn open on his face and body. His skull caved in, his hair ripped out, his bones broken into pieces as he lay on a table in the morgue, a picture that revealed an ugly reality America could no longer ignore. The images of Emmett Till's mutilated body were grotesque and shocking and heartbreaking to a country that tended to perceive that kind of racial hatred to be a Southern problem. Captured by photographer David Jackson, Till's grieving mother stood next to her 14-year-old dead son. Her tear-stained face contorted in desperate agony and gut-wrenching despair. Emmett Till, 14, was kidnapped and killed allegedly for wolf-whistling at the wife of accused Roy Bryant. Till, who was from Chicago and visiting relatives in Mississippi, was accused of whistling and making sexual advances at a white woman. His accuser, Carolyn Bryant, also said Till had groped her and uttered obscenities. His mangled body was found days later in the Tallahatchie River. Emmett Till's mother shrugged social conventions of the day and insisted her son have an open casket at his funeral. And the world was watching as mainstream media began to explore what exactly was happening with black Americans and their lived experiences in the United States, questioning elected officials about their legislation, demanding they take a public stance on racial crimes, and pressing for plans to address the civil rights of black Americans. Never has this quiet little cotton-growing community of Mississippi seen so much publicity and so much excitement as in the past few days. Time magazine was one of many in the media who refused to let the issue rest as Emmett Till's killers Roy Bryant and J.W. William faced their day in court, sitting with confidence in the courtroom, smoking cigars and kissing their wives. Nearly 200 of the town's five or 600 residents have packed into the courthouse to hear the day's proceedings. Do you have any evidence bearing on this case? I do know that this is my son. How long do you expect to be here? Until the trial is over. After the men were acquitted of all charges and set free to move on with their lives, others began a long journey towards civil rights for black Americans, justice for racially motivated crimes against black Americans, and to insist upon protections, rights, and equal treatment under the law for black Americans, inspiring people like Rosa Parks to stand firm and refuse to back down in the fight for civil rights in the United States. A boy, a 14-year-old boy, was killed brutally. And one of our objectives here is to see to it that that boy, the picture you see there, does not die an inconspicuous death, and that his case will be remembered and something will be done about it. And Emmett Till's mother helped lead the way. It's such a gratifying feeling to see you all sitting by and standing by, because I realize 
shortly after this thing happened that it wasn't a fight that I could do, that it was going to be a fight that we had to do, that the people would do for me, more or less. And I want you all to stand by me because it's going to be a fight. And if you will stand by me, I will stand by you because I am not afraid. Now, 67 years after the murder of Emmett Till, Congress has passed legislation as of March 2022 that would make lynching a federal hate crime for the first time in U.S. history. The Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act is one of nearly 200 bills that have been introduced in the past century to ban lynching in the U.S. and allows the federal government to prosecute a crime as a lynching when a conspiracy to commit a hate crime results in the death or serious bodily injury of another person. According to the legislation, the maximum sentence for such a crime would be 30 years. I think that twixt the Negroes of the South and the women at the North all talking about rights. The white men being a fix pretty soon. But what's all this talking about? 94 years ago on March 1st, 1828, the People v. Gedney trial began, culminating in a victory for Sojourner Truth, an abolitionist who was fighting for the freedom of her enslaved son, Peter. According to court documents, it was the first time a black woman had successfully sued a white man for the freedom of someone in her family. Look at me. Look at my arms. I have plowed and planted and gathered in the barns. No man can hit me. And ain't I a woman? Truth, whose real name was Isabella Bomfrey, was born into slavery in New York in 1797. And although she would become one of the most powerful advocates for human rights in the 19th century, she was sold and beaten and separated from her husband and then forced by her master to marry another slave and have children. In 1827, after her master failed to honor his promise and free her and to uphold the New York anti-slavery law of 1827, Isabella ran away, or as she later said to her master, she did not run away. She walked away in broad daylight. At the 1851 Women's Rights Convention held in Akron, Ohio, Sojourner Truth delivered what is now recognized as one of the most famous abolitionist and women's rights speeches in American history, called Ain't I a Woman, reenacted by actress Alfre Woodward. They talk about intellect. What that got to do with Negro rights? If my cup won't hold but a pint and yarn hold a quart, wouldn't you be mean not to let me have my little half measure full? In March 2022, researchers in the New York State Archives uncovered an eight-page deposition which gave an expanded context about how slavery case law worked in New York State, which in the 18th century was a major slave port. The 200-year-old deposition was filed in court under Isabella Van Wagenen, which was the surname of an abolitionist family that was helping to free her son. Truth lived in Kingston, New York at the time and sued not only her child's ex-master in Alabama for the emancipation of her five-year-old son, Peter, but she also sued the Albany Supreme Court for authorizing the illegal sale. The little boy was an indentured servant to Truth's former master, John Dumont, and could not be sold but was illegally sold to Eliezer Gedney of Newburgh, New York, for $20. Young Peter was finally sold again to Solomon Gedney, according to the Times Union, and the child ended up in Alabama. Abolitionists supported Truth's pursuit of justice, and they helped build a legal strategy around the Gradual Emancipation Act of 1799 in New York that had freed slave children born after July 4, 1799, but indentured them until they were young adults. Since Peter was indentured, he could not have been sold to Gedney in the South. 
Peter was eventually recovered from his owners in Alabama, but when he was returned, it was evident he had been severely physically abused. According to her memoir, Truth says she approached Dumont about returning her little son only to be mocked because while she was free, she was still poor. Her response was to say, quote, I have no money, but God has enough and I'll have my child again. I can eat as much as a man. I can work as hard as a man. Eat as much when I can get it. And ain't I a woman? I have born 13 children. And I seen most all of them sold off to slavery. And when I cried out in my mama's grief, where nobody heard me but Jesus, ain't I a woman? Oblige to y'all for hearing me now, Sojourner. Ain't got nothing else to say. Many of Truth's words became famous as she fought not only for her son's freedom, but continued to fight for the rights of black women to be treated equally among society. While the judicial and legislative processes addressing how black Americans live in the United States have moved forward over time, neither have been able to effectively address the roots of racism or rid the country of its devastating effects because of the inability of the law to govern the human heart. The United States is the most progressive country on earth due to its constitution, which facilitates the ongoing construction of a strong and complex infrastructure of equal protections for every American. Though the implementation of such protections often occur after a devastating event like the death of Emmett Till and others like him, who were victims of the racial strongholds that have permeated all of human civilization since the fall of mankind into sin in the garden. Yet the United States continues to lead the way in insisting that dignity and sanctity of life are afforded to every person based on the foundational understanding that all people are created equal by God, a cornerstone that no other country on earth through all of human history has ever asserted or defended with their own lives. How could the founding fathers who endorsed the idea that all men are created equal also endorse the idea that some men aren't? Dr. Carol Swain is an author and a retired professor of political science and law at Vanderbilt University who speaks around the country about race relations, immigration, representation, Christians and politics, and the United States Constitution. In her discussion with conservative education platform PragerU, Swain discusses the three-fifths compromise in the U.S. Constitution that many believe counts black people as three-fifths of a person, a point of deep contention today used to attack the Constitution as a racist document of the white patriarchy that Swain says is entirely misinterpreted and misunderstood. Note that the Constitution does not say that a slave is not a person. It explicitly says that they are persons. And it also does not say that a slave is three-fifths of a person, as many today mistakenly believe. The three-fifths description had nothing to do with the human worth of an individual slave, but everything to do with how many representatives each state would have in the U.S. Congress. For that purpose, states could only claim three-fifths of their slave population. The three-fifths compromise was devised by those who opposed slavery, not by those who were for slavery. Or to put it another way, it wasn't the racists of the South who wanted to count slave populations less than white populations. It was the abolitionists 
of the North. According to Dr. Swain, the northern states were gravely concerned about the reality that the southern states were planning to form their own country, putting a free country and a slave country right next door to each other and in constant, deadly conflict. In order to compel the southern states to agree to join the Union, the northern states put forth the Three-Fifths Compromise, which was a savvy political move that permitted southern states to count their massive slave population for representation in Congress at a Three-Fifths standard. Had the southern states been allowed to count their nearly four million slaves for representation in Congress, they would have greatly outnumbered the representation present in Congress for the northern states, meaning that if 100 percent of the slave population in the South had been counted, slavery may very well have lasted into the 20th century. Imagine how much more powerful slave states would have been without the Three-Fifths Compromise. The Three-Fifths Compromise was the solution to the most difficult challenge the framers faced, how to create a single country out of people so divided on a fundamental issue. As discordant as the compromise sounds to modern ears, without it, there would have been no United States. The Three-Fifths Compromise didn't deny the humanity of blacks. It affirmed it. This is Mississippi. Today, a situation exists in Mississippi that is unlike the situation in most states in the nation. In some sections of the state, there is a preponderance of colored citizens. This situation has brought problems. It has created challenges. But most important of all, It has inspired a social system to meet the challenge. In every community in Mississippi, there is segregation of the races. Drinking fountains are segregated. In the 75 years before Emmett Till had reached Mississippi for his visit, more than 500 black people had been lynched in the state. Most were men who had been accused of associating with white women. And now that legislation has finally been passed, making lynching a federal crime, the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, Senator Rand Paul issued a statement saying Till and other black Americans who had been lynched inspired the bipartisan bill. And he said, all Americans should celebrate its passage. The Kentucky Republican also said that while news coverage portrays the nation as hopelessly divided and suffering under a broken government, the reality is that it was Americans in leadership, regardless of color, who came together, set aside their differences, and with careful deliberation and cooperation worked to ensure another important step was taken in the ongoing fight for American justice. Examining the issues that pertain to the people of God, this is the matter at hand. From in and around the Capital Region, on the Alive Radio Network, I'm Alicia Purdy.